Welcome to the Propaganda Report. This is Monica Perez with my co-host Brad Binkley and our special guest today who may need no introduction to our listeners. Binkley and I both agree he is an uh, original gangster in the truth and uh, podcasting realms. We both remember early days, even though I'm sure you're younger than I am, but you're way ahead of me on carving a path through the truth and finding what's really hidden behind the trees. My first uh, exposure to you was a John Taylor Gatto interview, which I have mentioned many, many, many times in the years since I first saw that. Some people might know you from that platform, which was Tragedy and Hope or the podcast Peace Revolution. Today, your signature, your marathon podcast is your Sunday night Grand Theft world. And we have also shared a screen a few times on Union of the Unwanted, which is a privilege. So it was inevitable that we would get together. It is a pleasure to have you today. Richard Grove, welcome. Monica, thank you for that that warm, genuine, spontaneous introduction. I think that's one of the best intros I've ever had. Brad, nice to meet you. I'm fans of your work. And uh, I'm excited here to have a power-packed hour of knowledge exchange, given that Unlike most of the interviews I do, like you have also a knowledge of these things now for yourself that is showcase worthy. So this is going to be an exciting conversation. I look forward to it all week. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And there's one thing that I always wondered from the very beginning of my exposure to your work is you you came out from the very beginning. You were very professional, very focused. You had none of the histrionics or the stuff that some people who kind of exploit the the appeal of a deeper truth that resonates, that is left completely undiscussed in the mainstream. It's very easy to try to make it larger than it is to sensationalize it. But you never did that. You you talk you have facts, you have resources, you're always very polished. And I just I wonder that kind of thing takes a lot of effort, focus and commitment. And there was probably no expectation. You were forging new ground, so no expectation of real success there. And I just kind of wanted to know what your path to that place was. I mean, I for me, that John Taylor Gatto interview just blew me away. It was called the ultimate history lesson. Like what what got you there? And then maybe what got you here? <laughs> All right. So what got me to the ultimate history lesson? Short version. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. I learned later, Gatto also grew up in Western Pennsylvania. So we shared a lot of kind of hometown values. I didn't discover his work uh, until about 2004. And that was kind of my, you know, first couple of years of my red pill phase. I knew there was something going on, but I didn't have details. I bumped into Gatto's Underground History of American Education, which he wrote in 2001. I bumped into it like 2004 and it, it washed off me. I didn't get it. A lot of the things in there he's talking about, I didn't have the context to make the connections. So I put that book down for several years. I went out and continued to do deep dives into what are the primary artifacts and evidence of more than nationalism being at work here. Call it supranationalism, call it globalism, call it the new world order. It's a whole bunch of different names for it, but it's a group of bad actors on this planet who saw fit to be custodians of the planet without being voted in. They are going to shape your life, your family's life, your future's life, you know, your future generation's lives uh, in their image as they see fit because they are the strong and we are the weak. And it's a might makes right kind of Darwinian survival and preservation of the favored races idea that they have. So I was out there collecting first editions of any any of the history that made me incredulous, whether it was Woodrow Wilson or Colonel House or Lord Gray or Carol Quigley's works or any of these types of things, because I was like, 
I went to public school. I was a straight A student. I went to college for five years. I got a good degree. I got you know very successful in the in the in the business world. And how could I not know these things? How could a family like the Rothschilds exist and have a significant, substantial influence for 200 years of Western history? But it's not on my radar whatsoever. And then it's like page 52 or 56 of Tragedy and Hope, where Georgetown professor Carol Quigley, who who was a mentor to Rhodes Scholar Bill Clinton, and he was trained, uh, Quigley was, by uh, Crane Brinton, another Rhodes Scholar. So there's this lineage of Anglo-American uh, exuberance, domination, domineering, planning for a new world order that goes back was really interesting. So um, just digging in and from there, it's like, what else can you find out? And then you come to find out like the Rothschild family has official online archives. I don't read French, so I don't dig too much into the French ones, but the British ones are still available today. And it might be rothschildarchive.org or .com. But when you dig in and start read their letters in their own words, it's there's no need to hyperbolize because the reality is so much grander than anything that's being communicated about it in these interviews. Like I can tell you about um, the Stanford University 1965 publication from Sigmund Diamond of the Rothschilds, uh, Solomon the Rothschilds letters during the Civil War, right before the Civil War kicked off in this country. Go ahead. They have the same for World War One at the Hoover Institution. Did you know that all of the documents from World War One that would prove that it was an absolute elite plot? I think the Hoover Institution might have been kind of christened at that time for that stuff. In, in yeah, fact. Well, it's, yeah, because Herbert Hoover was an early billionaire yes. magnate in Russia when they Sovietized it and reappropriated everyone's wealth. I read a great book called The Secret, The Hidden History, The Secret Origins of World War One, a real nice book. And it talks about that. But one thing I just wanted to say about how this isn't on your radar yet, you can find actual wasn't on your radar in the mainstream education stuff, but you can find evidence of it. It's undeniable. People will just literally like not hear you. And then if they do hear you and you can show them the proof, they don't want to hear it, but they'll say, oh, not anymore or something weird like that. Not anymore. It's like, oh, yeah, Operation Mockingbird, not anymore. Like, come yeah. on. Well, it has yeah, no meaning to them because I don't know why my camera keeps doing this. My apologies. It has no meaning to them because the media hasn't told them that it's supposed to be important to them. I had an instance of this where I showed somebody the Jeffrey Epstein court documents like back in 2015, and they just it, did, it meant nothing to them. And then fast forward to 2021, and all of a sudden, because they made it into a Trump scandal with Acosta that was in this thing, all of a sudden Jeffrey Epstein mattered to these people, even though they had seen it years before. It's like in that uh, HBO thing, Westworld, where the androids, they see something that's like not allowed for them to know. And they yeah. just say that means nothing to me. Yeah, it's a lot like that. And that's where they've gotten to. And that's what Gatto ends up describing the process of how all this happens. Right. So I went out, I did a couple more years research. Then I went back to my shelf and I read that that it's a, it's a huge book. It's, uh, it's like an odd size. The print, you know, the like the pages are just filled you know, it's not the usual format that people read in. Right. So I read it again, but now I knew who Frederick Taylor was. Now I knew about scientific management and Bertrand Russell. And now John is then taking you on the journey of here's how all this stuff was applied and aimed at the youngest among us over a series of generations to internationalize Americans and change our attitudes, values, behaviors and beliefs to be more in line with communism. Is scientific management the like Dewey thing where is that hand in hand with the education? What is scientific management? So scientific management 
Uh, so my best resource would be chapter nine, the cult of scientific management in the underground or the, yeah, the underground history of American education by Gatto. He starts out by talking about Frederick W. Taylor, uh, a possible distant re- relative of Gatto's. And he was really the pioneer Frederick Taylor was of working with the big nonprofit foundations to um, start applying time management to production lines. So Nike today paying three cents for all these you know, complicated actions, that comes from the scientism of the workplace and the, that the education, the schooling that they started to bring in was training people to be future workers in the workplace. So it made sense to also bring scientific management to bear. And that's where education in this country became schooling. They took the free will out and they put the scientific management in. And that's what formulated a 20th century that could tolerate World War One, World War Two, and all these other things that were not American interests and not good uses of American tax dollars if Americans are going to have taxes. Like that's so that's the that's the domestication of the human being. That's yeah. making the human being a workhorse. Fully. And they did it right after. I mean, it was originated in uh, in Prussia right after the Franco-Prussian War with Napoleon and uh, and uh, at the Battle of Jena. And they beat the Prussians and then the Prussians and von Clausewitz. All these people were trying to figure out, uh, Fichte, how did we lose to Napoleon's amateur army? And they needed a way to indoctrinate children so they would grow up to be soldiers and not run off the field of battle and pursue their own interests. And then they figured out how to break the will of young individuals. They systematized that. Harvard and a couple other people sent uh, other colleges, sent people over to Prussia. They said, this is a great system of this obedience to authority. Then they brought it back over here, slowly ameliorated American ways into that system through the education system, turning into public schooling, which there's a good meme going around. They show like the bus, the food, the classroom between schools and a prison is like pretty much the same thing. And that was the subtitle of the Gatto's book, The Prison of Modern Schooling. So it's a very real circumstance and it really explains the attention deficit, the learned helplessness, scarcity mentality that keeps everybody in check and keeps them obedient to authority. Even if authority is contradicting itself every day, just like big brother did in 1984. Can't hear you, Binkley. Sorry. That's interesting. What you said about the the prisons and the schools. I went to a band concert recently for uh, a friend of mine whose kid was in the band is in the band at a high school and it's just band buses everywhere. And I was walking through the parking lot and there's all the regular yellow buses. And then there was one bus that was a white bus that clearly had been a prison bus that they had turned into a high school bus. I was like, these kids are riding in a prison bus. Oh, my God. There's two things that what you're saying reminds me of. One is that Bismarck, I remember this quote. I don't have the reference at my fingertips, but I've read it more than once that Bismarck basically said to the Kaiser after I I think it was during the, the Industrial Revolution or something was happening to where people had a little bit of surplus and could take care of themselves. And they were worried because they would stop loving the Kaiser and and Bismarck supposedly uh, said Well, if we take the money away and give it back to them, you know, the idea of Social Security or unemployment insurance Mm -hmm. or whatever, then they will love you and their dependents like you will be their dad again. They they will love you. And so I always considered that like the inception of the modern welfare state. And so when you were talking about Prussian education, I thought they really I mean, I'm sure there's probably more to it than that. There it was. It probably does account for basically the entire system of possibly. 
you're right. That's the first place because they had like the the widows endowment fund over there, that sort of thing. And then that idea was brought into uh, I think England took it on shortly before FDR kind of introduced it over here. And that's a world socialism collectivist type of thing where dependence on the central authority gives them more power than even if you don't agree with them, you have to take it because it's a it's a form of golden handcuffs. And it's a form of mass enslavement because where the government creates nothing, they just reappropriate wealth through and various the, means. The universal basic income that is coming down through all the layoffs from the lockdown, um, I always identified as of that kind of thing, too. And I wanted to give you credit and that interview with Gatto for really having a huge impact on how I raised my kids because I was not aware of the trivium idea. Mm. And there's actually quadrivium or something. I don't even know what that yeah. is, but the trivium idea where it goes from uh, grammar to uh Grammar to logic to rhetoric. So from what I then investigated after listening to the your interview with Gatto was Dewey kind of cutting out that last part. So you had the grammar, which is learning stuff. And then you had people don't understand this. There is the logic is in there. The critical thinking is in there. But the. But the rhetoric part of how to influence and how to recognize being influenced is taken out. So you you're more like a high powered machine, which is where you get all this STEM stuff, which maybe this was you too. Charlotte Ezerbite was telling yeah. about STEM is dangerous and I, and they push it like it's supposed to be a good thing. Yeah. But so I now call people STEM bots I'm like, well, that's that they're just raising a bunch of STEM bots there. Science, technology, engineering, and math, because she pointed out that that takes away that that civic understanding. And, and it's I'm a hardcore libertarian. I think we all could probably consider ourselves libertarian, but there's a danger because libertarian to me is really a political position. What is the proper role of government? But I, I think they the big T, they would like to put the baby out with the bathwater and act like libertarianism is everything about your world and your view of the human being. But it's actually quite the opposite or or, or such rich individuals that government is only a small part. We can manage ourselves. We have wisdom and we need to learn that from our heritage, our culture, our parents, educate, however you want to define education. That's all part of it. And when they take away, they separate you from your families you're, you know, everybody's working. The kids are in school from cradle to career. And then they intentionally take out that element of the whole human as a, as a part of society. It's they have total control. And that's where I think of us as like workhorses, even though we're highly educated. Yeah. So there's there's multiple layers to what you said. Uh, first off, human beings are very hard to control. And there's a group of people out there whose goal it is to control human beings. So if we have a higher cognition and conscious level, we're really hard to control. So what they can do to control us more like animals is to get us to stop using neocortex and race to the bottom of the brainstem. And then they can influence us with fear, with propaganda. We don't know which way up or down because those are all thinking faculties of the neocortex where you would have to ask a question. Is this really true? Let me, is there any evidence to the contrary? Let me start taking time and expanding my freedom because when we're under stimulus reaction, that's slavery, but we cram in some thought in between there. So it's stimulus, thought, thoughtful response, we are able to be free. We are able to overcome challenges. We're able to solve problems. So that's really part of what schooling did. And then, then your, to your point about Dewey taking out the rhetoric, it doesn't do you any good to use your five senses to think logically if you don't know how to express yourself via the active literacies, literacies to speak to a person, to speak to a group, to write, 
to create media, to create art, to express yourself and get that out there. That's fully missing in our society. And they took it out on purpose. And not, that's so interesting that you should say that. That expands on something I picked out of also of the Gatto thing. He said, beware to poo poo literature as not a good use of your reading time, because that's totally my it's really hard. I used to love science fiction and whatever, which has value like it doesn't have no value. But he said literature will do. And this is in your interview with him. Literature can pull out. It is worthwhile, valuable literature if it if it just simply identifies, articulates, elucidates a single thing about about human beings, not even all human beings, but that was previously unidentified, unisolated. Just one simple observation that helps you understand the um, the nature of of you know, human nature a little bit better makes it worthwhile. And I really use that as a standard now. I don't feel guilty when I read literature because of that. But I also heard Judge Napolitano back in the day say, you can't have this constant surveillance. You can't have mind control. You can't have being in people's heads because you can't, people need creative outlet. That is autonomy. That is growth. And these are the things that we just, we're so busy defending ourselves against this constant onslaught of tyranny that we really don't have a lot of time to not only develop the creative stuff, the artistic stuff, read the literature, but even to know that that stuff has value, that we are the living man. We are the whole, like the noble man. Yeah. It's, it's a denial of, uh, of adolescence. It's a denial of rites of passage to become adults. And then we're denied uh, the rich texture and tapestry of all that has been written down heretofore that might be useful in our struggle to maintain, attain, retain freedom. They have us reading a whole bunch of other stuff that really doesn't pertain to that. So I don't know any schools that are mandating, you know, before you graduate and go into the world, maybe you should read Gulag Archipelago. Maybe you should be able to take in some long form content on relevant history of the past so you can recognize how to stop it in the future. They wouldn't want that because it's antithetical to their plan, but they will have your kids like read a whole bunch of stuff that, that nonsense is not going to help them in the world. Um, the other ideas are, you know, the, the, the ties between libertarian philosophy and the Constitution and, and just basically history in this country. Those ties are all broken so people can't understand we, uh, you know, in the past created a constitution, so we might have some individual liberties protected by, you know, and from these other groups that would seek to take it away. These days, it's all discombobulated. I became a libertarian in 2004 when I saw, because I didn't like it, it was like skull and bones versus skull and bones. And I, I was like, I'm not even participating. I heard Michael Badnarik on like C-SPAN doing this presentation. It made more sense than anything ever. And that was the last time I voted, but I did vote for him. And uh, then I learned a lot more about how the, the steering wheel is not connected to the wheels. We're like kids in the back seat with a toy steering wheel. And these other people have predetermined agendas that they're unfolding and then they make us support it through propaganda. Exactly. I think. Yeah. yeah go ahead. Now, we I, talked about that on the show today about this Facebook pay, this Facebook push that they're doing this week and all the news people are getting together and presenting the same agenda. And Blumenthal said that we almost have the public asking, demanding to push this regulation through. And like, that's what it's about is getting the public to support what they predetermined that they want to push through. And I think that I probably started really reading Plato when I discovered your work and your inter interviews and you know, the education system, taking philosophy out of it and reading Plato changed my life. It just it, it every kid in middle school, they should read philosophy because it just changes the way that you think and opens your mind to possibilities that they don't want people opening their minds to because people will ask questions then. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you for getting me to, to do that. 
it just it's baffling that people haven't been exposed to that type of work. And like you said, long form content, we're being conditioned to not tolerate anything longer than 30 seconds at this point with TikTok it's, and all this other stuff. It's like these monumental achievements of classical music. And then I like turn on the radio. I'm just like, that's not even music like that is deliberately <laughs> meant it. to hurt my brain. And I'm like, we man is no animal. Listen to the great classics. But I did want to ask you about Plato, too. I had the same thought, Binkley. It reminded me of Plato. Also, this rites of passage idea that you've talked about. And I seem to recall Plato said, don't even teach people how to read until they're 10. 10 years old, that there's a developmental, there's all these developmental stages of the whole human. And so it's funny that both Binkley and I, that you elicited the thoughts of Plato. Well, there's several passages. There's uh, the allegory of the cave, which the lesson is you can go through your awakening process, but don't try to go back into the cave and tell them because they'll kill you because they haven't gone through the awakening. So what you can do as adults, mature adults, we can make media and shine it into the cave and put it on their screens. That's the best we can do, because otherwise, you know, they have to take those steps to come out on their own. We can't go in and pull them out. So but media, they, there are there are people out there trying to keep that gate shut. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We have to keep getting more and more interesting and mesh networks and we're going to keep getting it out there. But the other aspect would be uh, steering the ship of state, Kybernetes, the, the helmsman and how to use information to control human beings. And that's a thing for thousands of years. So these concepts aren't new. They've been refined. The technology is different, but the human beingness is very the same, which is why we can reach back into time, read those classics and really relate to the problems that they're trying to solve, the observations they were making and the stage at which they were thinking. And um, the, the whole thing about art is if art and the truth weren't such a threat to their operations, they wouldn't have to have propaganda and psychological warfare. They wouldn't have to ruin music if it wasn't originally powerful in its original state. So Truth is on our side. If we take the intellectual, moral and ethical high ground and make them come up to our level and don't sink down in the mud with them, we're going to be OK. We need to keep the flames and embers of freedom akin, uh, a lit. And we do that by passing it off. Knowledge becomes wisdom only when shared. So it's also about active literacies. How do we learn stuff that's substantial and then share it with others in a timely fashion to preserve and proliferate freedom? Well, that makes me think of what I was listening to you on Sam Tripoli and you were talking about. I don't know if it's is what you're saying. Is it pertaining to your latest endeavor? Um, I don't know if it's a commercial endeavor or what, if it's entrepreneurship, if it's education. I was going to ask about it later, but I'm curious. Oh, you're curious. All right. So uh, I'm glad you listened to my my show with Sammy because uh I had a little trepidation on going over the tinfoil hat podcast over there on the rock fan. Um, those guys like to have a lot of fun. I'm, I'm kind of serious. This is a real thing we're going through. There's real artifacts. And how do I get this out without seeming too uptight on his audience? Um, so I'm glad you got value from that. And um, the autonomy course that I developed, it takes what Gatto observed that they took these certain things out of education in order to make it schooling. So my hypothesis was we should put those things back. And then I couple that unindoctrination part, which is the first two weeks of the course. Uh, the other 10 weeks of the course are teaching entrepreneur skills, high value skills that people can learn to do things without degrees, without having to go through college, how to find your clients, how to build a freelance career, or if you want to be an employee or get a raise or get a moving package, how to negotiate these sort of things. And I learned all these skills while I was in college, working to pay for college. So... If you bear so, with me for a second, I went to a really good state school. I went there for five years in order to pay for that degree. I had to do side jobs. I was a cook. I worked at a video store, but I also learned how to be an entrepreneur 
I got mentored. I learned sales skills. And then I took those into software industry and sold enterprise software for several years and did very well. So I, I want to just understand so you yeah. said the first two weeks of your program is what? Unindoctrination. Unindoctrination, the liberation. So it takes them 15,000. They take them 15,000 to, to program you. Uh, that takes a long time. The unindoctrination, the liberation process is much shorter. It can go, you know, people can go through those types of ideas. They need to identify which of these remnants or inserts of unuseful beliefs or things that they've learned need to be removed. They're holding them back, right? They've got their emergency break on from the public education. So the learned helplessness, they don't even think they could improve themselves. The scarcity mindset, they are using the word can't instead of the word how can I and asking a question, getting the brain going, right? So we kind of remove those, those sticks and, and uh, prickers and these sort of things, triage everybody in the first couple of weeks. And even season, like I have many students who have graduated. We're doing the sixth season right now. They've graduated five times. They're entrepreneurs. They keep getting more value out of it each time they go through because they all have lifetime enrollment. So um, the unindoctrination process, if I taught the students the high value skills without that first couple of weeks of prep and like triage, they wouldn't, it wouldn't stick. They would quit on themselves. They would never get to their first success or their first like, you know, ignition of their potential. And then be like, how much more is there to that? You know, so all those breakthroughs that we make from the lectures and the exercises and the community and the question and answer sessions, it needs a certain um, uh, a momentum that gets built up. And you can't do that with the brakes on. So we That's go through a couple of weeks of unindoctrination and then we start hitting that high speed on skills that, you know, like if. If you just took two weeks of the course of the high value sales skills, which I teach is it's the art of problem solving. It doesn't involve pushing, convincing, persuading, conniving, any of those types of things. You ask questions, you listen, you come up with a solid plan that's better than the one they have and people pay you for that. And that's a sales skill that you can take anywhere on the world, anywhere on the world and get really good compensation for, or as an entrepreneur, it's a single thing you need that most people don't have. It's like people, they get this prototype of what they're supposed to be in this checklist of what they're supposed to meet going through the education system. And if you don't meet that checklist or you're unable to go to some of those institutions, then you judge yourself based on the checklist and you are a failure if you don't meet it. It sounds like you are taking away that checklist and allowing people to kind of embrace what they are and what they have to use those skills to help others solve problems and reach a higher level of just of what they can do, of what they can achieve. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm sure that the situation I'm addressing is real because I paid for a business management education. And I know because I also learned how to run a business as an entrepreneur that the education they gave me had nothing to do with actually doing something over here successful in that realm. And that's where I really felt ripped off. And even though I was successful at you know doing my job and, and selling enterprise software, I wasn't using my degree to do that. So it's only because I went and did this extracurricular stuff and focused my time on my own and did these learning experiences that I was successful, not because of the schooling. And I think that's where a lot of families are getting ripped off. It's, it's their second big in, biggest investment. They got a house and then they got the kids' college educations and they save for decades to put that together. And then their kids go through it. They get all banged up and then they have no direction, no goals, and they have no real skills that they can depend on or service and prepare, like, uh, pr support their parents later in life. So the extended adolescence problem that we have where people aren't going through the, the, you know, the rites of passage to become successful, survive and thrive in the world and build and be able to be self-reliant and be generous enough that you have extra you can give to others. You're patient, you're calm, cool, collected because your needs are met in a peaceful way. 
You're also there to be able to aid and assist others, family members, community members, work members. So it really makes the world a better place. But we got to start with ourselves. Knowledge of self and knowledge of our environment are paramount. And they have skewed both of those since we got here to this planet in this lifetime. Well, I so, I agree with what you guys are saying. I have a business. I have an MBA. I have a master's of business administration. And it, it makes you Stanford think, degree. But your other degree is a Harvard degree. I have a Harvard undergrad in economics and I have a JD MBA from Stanford. So I should be able to like run the world. Mm-hmm. But the master's of business administration, when you think about it, like the classes you're taking is really how to plug in at the highest levels of big corporations and help them run, which is lucrative for the people who are doing it. But it's not at all like the entrepreneurship I do. Um, I learned to focus and I learned to people and I'm around, you know, I, I have friends and uh acquaintances where I could glean some knowledge of how they do run companies. And it is valuable. That is, those are all valuable skills, but, but like for me, I can't, I can't work 60 hours a week or 80 hours a week. I couldn't, when I was raising kids, I cannot be part of that system. And it makes me feel like I am relegated to really never being super successful financially, which I don't really care about that. Um, that's not my primary problem. The problem is that if I wanted to use my skills or somebody like me wanted to use the skills in this world, that's ever like the walls are closing in on us. It's the Vax apartheid, all that kind of stuff is coming down. And it makes me concerned on two levels as I like try to launch my kids into the world. One is, can they be successful in the world if it's so highly controlled like that. And then I have another question, which is where I want to just launch into a conversation with you about your opinion on if how you deal with like I have a I feel moral conflict in wanting to launch my human beings. These are not cogs. You know, these are human beings. I put my heart and soul into to contribute to this world. And I need a little white pill from you. I'm not black pill, but it's a real struggle for me to think about my, you know, the way I aspire to the world and what I've always aspired to my kids. And, you know, should I be a tax protester by just telling my kids to crawl into a cave and never contribute to this system that that thrives on killing people, whether it's war or pandemic? I wouldn't tell him to crawl into a cave. So let's explore the white pill perspective because that's one of my specialities, the optimism that we can learn from today and, you know, these sort of things moving forward. There's there's curiosity that leads to inventive nature, nature, ingenious inventions. All these sort of things come about from from taking Kant out of our thinking and saying, what if we could? How could we do this? These sort of things. Right. So those are your future problem solver solvers and the people today. I think what you're feeling is the tension. It's like the birthing process. Right. And at the same time, their their systems collapsing. Freedom is, is rising. But people have to take on a lot more self-responsibility as they've found out in the past two years. Right. So for kids moving forward, the skills that they need to survive and thrive, whether the economy is you know, bifurcated and there's a group of unvaxxed, there's a group of vaxxed, there's still problems being solved in between there that people pay for and they're not going to ask for your papers, please, right? So if you want to rise above that, you have to have some essential skills that make you indispensable. And then those corporations, if you want to work for them, they'll work around that and say, you don't have to have a degree, you don't have to have a vax, whatever your situation is. You always have to see their situation and negotiate. But for the person who wants to stay away from all this and insulate themselves, you're going to need to pick up knowledge fast. So you want a good method of how to learn anything so that your judgments, your choices, your, your decisions are leading to consistent results of success so you can learn from those and improve and thrive. 
So you're going to need communication skills, problem solving skills, critical thinking, observation, listening skills, all these sort of things that we kind of have innately. But once we start to sharpen these things, we find out how valuable they are, right? Even just the skill of I'm never late for a meeting. That's a skill. Somebody's looking for someone. That's the first thing. You can't be late for the meeting. You always have to be here. No excuses, attitude, culture of excellence, all these sort of things that you, it would give you such an advantage over everyone else that's out there. I have a lot of students that go through the course once or twice. They start to practice it on their own, or they'll go out and get an employee job. Uh, and their, their service level is so much higher, their delivery, their integrity, all these things that make them either, either easier to manage if they're working as an employee or easier to do business with because they're a together business owner who has access to all the resources they need to meet your needs and satiate the offer through product or service. So in those situations, you're just armoring up for reality, whereas schooling just breaks people down, amputates your curiosity. It's, you know, and it's not really an amputation. It's more like they put a tourniquet on it. So the, the liberation from that lets you feel your creativity. And that brings back a lot of optimism as well. But I feel your struggle and that's real for, you know, a lot of us parents out there are concerned about that. Oh, you're, you're muted. muted, Monica. Are you familiar with the power principle? Power principle. No, refresh my mind. Well, I don't want to make the reference because it'll blow up your channel, but um, there's a certain guy who wrote a manifesto, <laughs> Uncle Ted. Hmm. Oh, yeah. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Actually, uh, Pete Quinones was just doing a part one, part two on that. And uh, nice. I, I saw Das Netz uh, back when Das, uh, what's the guy's name? The German guy that made that documentary. So, yeah, the power principle. Yeah. Now yeah it's it's basically that you have to do something important. It I believe it's this. You have to do something important. Yeah. You, you have set goals. They have to be important. They have to be hard, but achievable. And you have to be able to do it with autonomy. And that's how you become satisfied as a person. And that probably basically all of our problems in this society stem from not being able to do that. And he lays that at the feet of technology. But I don't think we're in a position right now of going back from that. And I feel like the entrepreneurship stuff, I mean, I don't I don't know. Um, beat into the ground, but I do feel like I would like a path, especially when I launch my kids into the world of them understanding that, that doing something hard, but achievable, a worthwhile goal that's essential and necessary to do with autonomy is possible enough in this world. You can abstract it a little bit, but it's enough to be truly satisfied. And, and I think that helps armor you against the despair that you can get if you if you are constantly beaten back at the doors of the you know the big doors of power and stuff or at least convinced that you would be beaten back i feel like well, it gives important. you self-reliance it gives you self-confidence from that not something they bought at the store got gifted by their parents it's like you know how to do something so send your kids in the world with two or three really strong freelance skills that are necessary to entrepreneurs because a lot of my students don't end up getting a job or being an entrepreneur directly, they start with a freelance skill. Let's learn how to download, edit, and upload yeah. video for a client and get paid 20 or 30 bucks an hour. And then once you move from that, maybe you can you know, spot the places and make montages and get paid a couple hundred or a couple thousand dollars with that skill set or copywriting or web design or graphics or all these things I, that I we use to, for yeah. clients on a daily basis. These are all that, the, the tech stack that the entrepreneurs need help to arm the, t the entrepreneurs with freedom ideas. And you Absolutely. don't have to be part of their institution. And Monica, you what you said about the small goals too, just once you achieve one of these things that before when you were indoctrinated, 
you realize all of a sudden that it's possible. And, and that kind of transforms your way of thinking. It's like, holy cow, I was led to believe that I am not able to do something like this. An example might be, you mentioned uh, freelancing a moment ago. Richard, uh, I used to write freelance scripts for years uh, through a lot of these online platforms. And I, I did, I worked with theaters and stuff too. And I didn't go to school for script writing. I have an economics degree, but I've always, I've done a lot of acting. I've done stand-up comedy. So I have a creative background, but I didn't have the formal education stuff. So I was going up, I was applying for these jobs up against people that had like 10, 15 years of of experience. And so if I tried to present myself the same way they did, here's my resume for a copywriter, I would lose every time. So that was freeing for me because I was like, great, I don't have to do it the same way everybody does it. Somebody told me one time, they said, you're a creative person, your resume does not have to be a regular resume. And I was like, awesome. So I wrote a script commercial as my resume. And I stood out every time and I started getting these jobs over other people just because I used what I had instead of trying to use what they told me I was supposed to. And it was such a freeing experience to me. And it's and what's that happened is like, holy cow, what else is possible? Like you ask, what else can we do if we think about it in different ways? I, I think I might take your course, man. I'm, I'm, I'm loving what I'm hearing from it. I was thinking that, too. <laughs> well, you guys and you would not only appreciate the educational part, but for graduates across the street, we have a digital marketing agency that has freedom-based clients. And we're going to talk about one here because he said such nice things about you, Monica, that I took notes when he said it. What? We, we have clients. And so graduates can go across the street. They can learn how to freelance and apprentice. And then we have clients like Howard Lichtman. And he's oh, got this yes. big launch going on right now. We're helping. And he's such a like crack, crack the whip. You know, he's got all these different people from my team working on his account right now. And he said, you're like 500 volts of electricity running through you all, all the time. Funny, witty, and such a professional media host. And I said, Howard, I'm calling you out. And that's all you said, such nice oh things. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Well, we have a great relationship with Howard. I love his book. I can literally, here's, here's one of his things. I'm sure right, right now he's like, Eddie M. Delabuete squared, please. Yes. But yeah. Yes. Yes, <laughs> yeah. we might have to. We don't want to, you know, people have their. No, we're not outing him. No, your, no, no, your people are cool. I'm sure he's cool. Yes, yes, yes. Wow, there. that's super cool. Thank you. Yeah, it, it it does feel like there is some momentum and some positivity coming from a lot of different directions. And I did. I wanted to ask you some a few get back a little bit to some history stuff. You're such a wealth of knowledge on this. And I just, I could not, even when I listened to the Tripoli thing, I've heard a lot of your stuff before, but I wanted to kind of get up to speed on the, your latest. So, uh, but there were just so many threads to pull on from some of the things that you said. So I, I don't have like a, um, total continuum, but I do want to hit on a few things. Maybe we can parachute in and you can explain some stuff and then For we can sure. move on. Okay. So you were, you were talking about Lily, is Lily, yeah. is that Lilly? Eli Lilly? Is he no, the partner uh, of, is that Eli? The no, John Lilly's the guy who developed the that? sensory deprivation tank. Okay, because Eli Lilly sells Prozac. And I just wondered yeah, yeah, yeah. if it was like the same, if it had any. I don't know um, if he's any relation to that family, but John, John C. Lilly was a pioneer in sensory deprivation and psychedelics inside the tank. And Joe Rogan owns Lily's tank. I, I think he died of a ketamine overdose or something like that. Very interesting guy. But the papers I found were from the adrenochrome studies, National Institutes of Health, National Institutes it. of Mental Health. And I have the document here in my stack someplace. So if you wanted to see that, I could actually. Give you the uh, so there were actual adrenochrome studies. How did they get adrenochrome for those studies? 
these are questions would have to go to the documents for. What's your next question? While I look yeah. For? Okay. Uh, so I wanted to ask if you think that what's happening to kids right now of like high anxiety, they're really having so, so many problems. And I'm starting to see a lot of mental health resources emerge at the same time that they're outing social media for creating mental health problems. There's definitely some kind of, it seems to me, intentional element to how they're attacking, especially young women, but I think also young men in a different way, attacking their mental health and their physical health right now. And I just wondered if you kind of think of that as a function of a highly unnatural environment, if how intentional you think that is. I'm just wondering, because in your approach to kind of open minded approach to education and development, mental development like that, I mean, do you do you see a sinister hand at work? Do you lay it at the feet of technology? What do you think is going into how our kids are on drugs, basically, to deal with this world? It's not the techni itself. It's not technology itself. It's the human use and planning and limitation and censoring and deplatforming to give people only a select perspective. It's been going on more aggravated uh, during the COVID pandemic. It's 100% being artificially created. They're trying to break people's will. It's about compliance. It's not about science. Um, when I co-wrote State of Mind, The Psychology of Control in 2013, uh, we brought together, I mean, there's a six-hour writer's cut version. There's a ton of information that people need to know on psychological warfare and how it's used in school, how it's used in history, how it's used in media, all these various areas. Um, Charlotte Iserby's work showed that their, their whole thing, those nonprofit foundations, Ford, Rockefeller, and Carnegie, through the Reese Committee and Norman Dodd, which you know about, uh, their job was to change the attitudes, behaviors, at, uh, and beliefs of American students slowly to bring in a communist collectivist society. I read Kids in today a- are struggling with that because communism is the group sacrifices the individual. And if you aren't one to go along like a sheep, they're going to try to ostracize you, excise you, you know, uh, get you out of the school, push you I, out or conform. I believe it was in a Rothbard book that he talked about how they established the American Historical Society in order to kind of rewrite American history. And they mm-hmm. they could not get the existing history teachers, history professors to get on board with with kind of changing our history to point towards the, you know, the bad of the past and the collectivist necessity going forward. So they had to just wait like for attrition for 20 years to wait until the old ones died off and made sure that nobody could come into that. Those they also positions. excised any anti-British sentiments. There was a lot of people in the 1920s who thought that British got us into world war one and they were trying to take us over. And then that all gets washed away by the 1930s and forties, by the end of world war two, we have that special relationship. And we are now the uh, the property managers for the, the British Empire. It's there were more about that. If anybody wants to check it out, it's called Getting Us Into War. It's written by this guy named Porter Sargent. It's like 700 pages. He's very funny. It. He's got, got it. it. I got I, it. I was you wondering wanna... if you had that book. I love let me, that book. Uh, let me grab it. I'll show you. That way I can show your audience. Yeah, I got I got one of the yeah, I got one of the old like the uh, the original prints of it. I've been trying to find some of his other books, man. I love that guy. I'm writing it down. I got I two. I got I uh, two. War and Education by Porter Sargent. And yeah. I have Getting Us Into War. This is a good first edition. Let me show your audience. 
who's not listening. For those of you listening, we're going I'm, to so Richard's I'm trying book to camp. Order Sergeant S A R G E N T. Nice. Ooh, I love Richard's book cam. Gosh, you're a man after my own heart. What's the copyright on that? Is that a, that's a first edition we'll right see. there. Yeah, let's look see. how nerdy we are. I have a first edition of Tragedy and Hope, Richard. Quarter Sergeant. I got my uh, copy right here as well. Mine's a little dirty. Um, <laughs> I want credit for having a first edition of Tragedy and Hope. You do get credit. And, and I have a first edition special. of Atlas Shrugs. Me too. But I heard you yeah. guys talking about, I think you have a first edition of oh, Tragedy nice. and Hope too. Yeah, I have so a first I got edition. A new I got one. reprints. I got yeah, so I got a new one. one to see if they took anything out. And this war and education. Let's see when Porter Sargent wrote this one. Which one is it that you had, Binkley, getting us into war? Getting us into getting war. us into war. And he wrote War in Education, 1945. It looks like. Wow, that should be interesting. 1943. Porter Sargent. He's. I think that he's hilarious. The way that he talks about. It. He's, he's sarcastic. He's got a good sense of humor. That's what keeps my interest in the way. And he, and he presents evidence and documents from congressional hearings and everything he says is is backed by yeah. evidence. It's great. Yeah. He's like a pre Carol Quigley whistleblower on these types of situations. And then down here, let me turn the light on. Uh, let's see. This is the one John Lilly HHS paper that I found right away on modified human age, uh, agents. And, oh, he's Stanford university. Yeah. He's at one of your alma maters. <laughs> one of your nourishing moms uh, also yeah. nourished him. Oh, uh, alma see. mater means nourishing mom. Yeah, nourishing mother. They gave me many. I mean, it was nice of them to let me, and I transferred from Harvard to Harvard from a community college. So I have nothing but gratitude for that kind of hand up. But I don't. I I tell my <laughs> I tell my kids don't to don't tell anybody that. Yeah, they um in this document there's a lot there would be a lot to cover. I'm not sure if this is the one that mentioned the adrenochrome, but it talks yeah. about his psychedelics, his uh, isolation tanks, his work with the CIA here and the National Institutes of Mental Health. And what year was he doing that? Uh, this was documented in the 90s. I thought he was doing it in the 70s. Yeah, because Cold there was War, a while. 60s and 70s. I have some books by conspiracy researcher Jim Keith, and there's a clear line of when they stopped documenting this stuff. And people think that's they stopped doing it, but they didn't stop doing it. They just stopped documenting it. So if you have anything documentation, I always think it's like 70s earlier. After carrying out some briefings from military and intelligence agencies, Lilly claimed to have become painfully aware that his research could be used to create powerful brainwashing and mind control techniques. This, he claimed, <laughs> was a key factor behind his decision to leave National Institutes of Mental Health in the late 1950s. And then it goes on to motivation and control with electrical brain stimulation in non-human species. And he worked with dolphins. And then over here, they're talking about you and Cameron and uh, MK Ultra and direct electrical injection, elicitation of information form and into from and into the brain. Well, that's what Klaus Schwab talks about in the appendix about internal tech being implanted. Wow. Well, so, there, that's in the Jim Keith book, too, it was like, the guy had a Spanish name, the, the real the real like Mengele of brain implants, really bad news, but it's kind of not credible that he didn't anticipate a weaponized application of this. Well, I mean, you know, people are naive when they're working under national security clearance. They think it's all for the, the good of the fatherland. <laughs> the collective good. So yes. the point I can draw directly from these two documents would be the adrenochrome hypothesis in psychiatry from the National Institutes of Mental Health over here 
and the various Rockefeller Foundation initiates and MK Ultra doctors. So the same place he's doing these these experiments over here on this one. At the same place, at the same time, they're running MKUltra Adrenochrome at National Institutes of Mental Health wow. under the National Institutes of Health. This is before Fauci got to the National <laughs> Institutes of Health. This is what was going on right before Tony Fauci took over. Do you know that his wife is a uh, prominent bioethicist? Yes. Could you imagine? That would be so- the general grammar on who is Tony Fauci. Is he Jesuit educated? You know, how did he come to power? So in observing these situations, going back to the trivium and John Taylor Gatto, you would say, what are the individual parts of this? Who is Tony Fauci? And it's the who, what, when, where, why, and how the five W's plus how. And you're answering that through the individual parts, how they fit together. And how do you express this knowledge to others in a cogent, coherent fashion? And if we have that working, freedom's working, we can be a lot harder to control. But when people hear Fauci say things, and they say, that's the truth. And then he says the opposite thing next day. And they say, that's the truth. They're getting double thinked. And or, well, you know, if you have read 1984, you should be insulated against those ideas. That's like an intellectual self-defense system that he gave you. He's like, here's the game and the rules and what they're trying to do. I and feel Alex like Huxley said he would prefer to see, you know, uh, this ultimate revolution where people learn to love their servitude. And it has nothing to do with freedom. I feel like they do that contradictory stuff intentionally so that not just to make you crazy, but so that you it gives you tired head and you learn to not try to think it through because you can't. The cognitive dissonance is uncomfortable, but, you know, you have to live in that system or you think you have to live in that system or you want to believe or it's easy for you to believe it's comfortable for you to believe. And you it it actually, I think, suppresses any impulse for critical thinking because you can't resolve the the conflict. And they weaponize fact checks to support all of this. Yes. And in the fact checks, they actually prove the claim. And then yeah. call it false at the same time, simply by throwing in some extra claim in, in the in the headline that nobody actually claimed, like the Hunter Biden example or whatever I give, where it's like, is it true that Hunter Biden is on video raping 30 Chinese girls? That's like, a straw yeah, man argument. So your fallacy right. flags should be going up like, oh, so right there. So is it an information source or a disinformation source? And that's how you can tell. Does what the claim it being made, does the assertion match reality and the evidence available? Is it attached to any evidence from which it's being made in the first place? And if these answers aren't in place, I dismiss as arbitrary and move on with my day because I have business goals, yes. personal goals. I got stuff to do. There's a lot of things <laughs> that want my attention in the world and only a few things can get it. So this is how you keep from being overwhelmed. I teach the students in week three or week four last week. We just covered overwhelm, how to deal with overwhelm because freedom and learning how to learn anything brings overwhelm. Now you can learn anything. What do you do with it? You're going to learn ancient Greek. And my question is, How's it going to help you pay your bills this month? Like, what's your big challenge and how does that thing help you get to your goal? And then once they get focused in on goals and next actions, they're liberated from all the distractions. We could be taught this in school, but school's school's purpose is not to teach us this. (laughs) I have a distraction. So (laughs) my dog is driving me crazy. So um, I could probably use some of that. But uh, there was another thing, another little thread I wanted to pull on. What are the Macy conferences? Oh, geez. Geez. I, I'm going to show you. Sorry. Am I? I, think I, it's on. I, just, I didn't mean for this to be a no, pop no, quiz, but I know no. it's I know you have it at your fingertips. It's not necessarily 
mean, obviously Jeez. you have it at your actual fingertips, but yeah, I think it's on your brain, brain fingertips. Too. You see my brain there? There's Let's your brain. See. That's that is a right. quite so, uh, an orderly brain. We were just on. Uh, so somebody asked me about Ted Kaczynski the other day. So I clicked on. That. I just asked you. Right. Well, no, the other day, I, oh, this was a recent really? thought. All, all these right here are oh, recent Pete. thoughts I've clicked through. Nice. So nice. one of the students in Q&A the other day probably asked me about it. They'd also asked me about the minds of men. So that thing's in there. You wanted to know about the Macy conferences. And that yes. is such a wonderful question. Let me just type I've never in heard Macy. Of it before you said it on Sam. Uh, the Josiah Macy conferences. These were people, uh, social and psychological control. Do you know anyone who worked on that? Maybe during World War II. So after the Nazis, quote unquote, lost, the people who funded the Nazis <laughs> took all that information and they start running. Uh, how do we control human beings? So it's cybernetics. It's MK Ultra. John Lilly is right here under the Macy conferences. That's an interesting little uh, uh, synchronicity there. Uh, you've got behavioral psychology, the CIA, these various foundations. Uh, Gregory Bateson was one of the, the leaders, Heinz von Forrester. Um, John Watson and Ivan Pavlov provided a little information back in the 1920s that they continued to study. Uh, and it's international. So you've got Tavistock interests. You've got people like Montague Norman, who is uh, he was the president of the Bank of England, uh, influencing this. And then coming forward, you get MK Ultra that starts around the same time as the Macy conferences, studying the very same things. And these are the, the, the projects that CIA conducts on behalf of its upper layer, the intelligentsia, the nonprofit foundations, the robber baron families who are doing this work to make the, uh, the human being into a biological computer laboratory and uh, bring forward a little uh, social renovation to our society. And if you go down into the conference topics, uh, self-regulating, simulated neural networks, this is the 1950s and 40s, guys, right? Uh, child psychology, Jeez. Then they and get that's into all the in, the, in the books. Like this isn't a conspiracy. Theory. No, no, this no. Is, this is there's Claude a wiki Shannon. entry for this. Look, they, 1950, they got Claude Shannon's information theory. Without that, we couldn't be having this call. I teach students about that in autonomy. Shannon's information. What's theory Shannon's the signal... information theory? Okay, so you know, high X, but well, you got Shannon's. you've got a re... it's it's 1947 paper that Claude Shannon wrote for Bell Laboratories. They answer a question that no one knows what the question was, but he he found the answer. The answer brought about digital technology and everything that we have in between us today, so we can talk. So it starts with um, uh, the, the sender and then the, the, the message is encrypted and then it goes through a system and then it's received and then it's decrypted. So this could be me talking to you either through digital or not digital. It's the same metaphor. In between while sending, there's a noise source and this creates entropy in the system. And the goal is signal to noise and you should be focused on the signal and the goal is no entropy even though it's not really a thing and really a real physical reality, there's always entropy because it's like a, it's like a mafia transaction. Each particle takes a little bit in the transaction and that adds up to entropy. So uh, these sort of things were defined. And then from there you have digital communications, semiconductor, all these sort of things that roll out SR 71 blackbirds, not possible without Claude Shannon kind of bringing this because it's a lot of electronics in that plane. So all of a sudden human resources could be aligned to bring about technological uh, proclivities that either gave them more power or gave them power to control us. Macy conferences was more about how do we use social psychology and behaviorism to control the people. And then, uh, it, you know, from that, you had the, the lower class kind of CIA, MK Ultra sub projects that brought them, brought their information back to the people from the Macy conferences because they were the people for whom the, the experiments were being conducted. 
Like CIA doesn't have it within its capabilities to have that knowledge, but between the Macy conferences and Tavistock Institute, the intelligentsia of social behaviorism and, and control, they, that's the brain trust for it. Does See, that make sense? Yeah, I feel like, well, I feel like that just put dangled Opens a whole a bunch of more worms. threads for me to pull on. And yeah, but does. thankfully, I don't have to pull on them because my guess is that you pulled on every single one of them, which it leads to another question of mine. What is the history blueprint? All right. So the history blueprint is this uh, this brain model. So it's it's built in a free software called the personal brain. So anyone can download the software. You can get it for free. You can make your own model. Mine was I needed to ask the questions of who are these people and where were, where are they educated, who trained them, what did they do, what's their legacies. And then starting in 2008, I started building this model and it now has over 10,000 thoughts and then 55,000 attachments. So there's an average of five attachments to each thought. As you see Norbert Wiener here on the screen, he has lots of attachments and uh, cousins. So he worked with von Neumann. And so there's things on the side that might give you insight. So if you wanted to learn about Norbert Wiener, aside from reading the primary sources at the bottom of the wiki page, the wiki page is never a source of information, but the primary sources at it's the bottom. It's a source of footprint, of footnotes. It, yeah, it could be a place where you start to dig in. Over here, you can watch right. Cybernetics. Here's a six-hour tutorial by Professor Umpleby, uh, and this was delivered years ago. This is fantastic. If you want so to wait, understand- this is something so I, that you created, but do, yeah. can other people access your actual brain or do they have to yeah. build their own brains? No, that you can access it. So I can send you a link to whatever thought we we're just talking about. And then you could click it and you'd be in the same model. You'd have the web version and you can't add to it. I have a lot of people who just buy my model outright and I sell it on my tragedyandhope.com store. And then they can make the model their own, enter their own data into it, reorganize it, add to it, however they want to do it because <sighs> they would have a licensed uh, copy of it. I can't get over those names, Norbert Wiener and Professor Professor Umpleby. <laughs> yeah, Professor Umpleby. Like, if you want to get nerdy and learn about that second order cybernetics, this is what they're doing yeah, to the yeah. world. So, 2013, you can hear a very, you know, here's a very academic lecture. But the world, it's the Hans, it's the Heinz von Forster cybernetics lecture. Like, if you want to know about the people who created the Macy conferences and run cybernetics. I mean, Bertrand. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, Norbert Wiener's book was cybernetics or control and communication in the human animal and machine 1948 and what is cybernetics all right cybernetics is the use of information to control human behavior and steer the ship of state as defined by plato in the republic so here's a history of uh cybernetics i'll put it back on screen you start with the uh, the definition that Wiki gives you is a, a transdisciplinary and antidisciplinary approach concerned with regulatory and purposive, purposive systems and their structures, constraints, and possibilities. It's game theory with humans. The core concept of the discipline is the circular causality or feedback loops, which is like what makes cruise control possible or cruise missiles possible. So there's a learning algorithm associated with it. You could pop that open, but you can you know explore these topics. You can read through the overview and then you can ask the question, like, what is what are closed systems or, you know, why did uh, Rich have Bronislaw Trentowski in here? Who is this guy? Right. And then if we were if I was being cheeky, I might do something like <laughs> this and I'll show you a Rhodes Scholar, Librarian of Congress, James H. Billington, Fire in the Minds of Men. Origins of the Revolutionary Faith. This is a legit book by, like I said, a librarian of Congress and a Rhodes Scholar. He wrote this epic tome, which I have marked up. And we can go to like page 241 and talk about cybernetics here. 
because aside from the French Revolution, Adam Weishaupt and Illuminist propaganda and Jesuit conspiracies, that this Librarian of Congress wrote this official book for the intelligentsia, uh, you could go in and learn about cybernetics. And it's going to be intelligentsia was also created by Bronislav Trentowski. And here it is right here. In 1843, B.F. Trentowski invented the word cybernetics to describe the new form of rational societal social technology, which he believed would transform the human condition. In his neglected work, The Relationship of Philosophy to Cybernetics, or The Art of Ruling Nations, he also invented the word intelligentsia. So on the reading list, Fire in the Minds of Men... I thought like, I was going to be the librarian of the tunnels. I think. <laughs> yeah, you're so. I'm smart, just going to. I'm going to be the bartender of the tunnels. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm. Yeah. Passing the baton to I you. Love this stuff. You can you can host the library. I have two more things. For you. First of all, is in your brain there the Webster Tarpley Palmerston Zoo? I oh, yeah. loved that. That was fantastic. I heard you talking about that the other day. Although he yeah. kind of fell off the face of the earth, but his well, that's stuff a study was in great. Venetian right. black nobility. Right. Do you think that's accurate? His what he says in that? It's um, he lost me a little bit. Yeah, a couple of times. Not everything he says is true. Yeah, not everything he says is true. And Tarpley himself is an enigma. I mean, he's a Fulbright scholar, which is an American Rhodes Scholarship program, right? He's and then when Aldo Moro was killed, the prime minister from Italy, yes, Operation Gladio, they call Webster Tarpley in to investigate. When Steve Pachenik's the one who did it. So they should really it's, talk. They're both on the Alex Jones show. It's weird. Right? And he wrote this great unauthorized biography of Obama and then later came out and said, I mean, I don't know what happened, but I loved that. And I loved him during that period. And then after and it sounds like before, you know, you got a very smart individual. Oh, and he sure. has some no areas that. that are blind spots that should not be blind spots to him. And that's always like the kind of red flag treat with caution Agreed. and care, handle carefully type of thing. Yeah. When McAfee said that he believed in the moon landing, I was like, McAfee did not Epstein himself. Yes, right. <laughs> I've seen that t-shirt. So uh, there was one other thing I wanted to ask you. Um, oh, this was, this was uh, something that you said. There are two things that we shouldn't gloss over the rights of passage thing. Like we mm. lack rights of passage in this in the society that would be so critical to getting people to have confidence to deal with challenges and to a clarity in their place and in development and in the world. And I, I hadn't thought of it the way that you had brought it out when I heard you talk about that. That was, well, there's like the, there's an implicit kind of um, nub left from this in the school system. It's still kind of there with sports and uh, school itself. Sometimes they have, you do fundraising. I think they're going to get rid of the sports because they no longer need the war model. And it was oh, just too healthy. For sure. For sure. And it's too extracurricular. They want total control. And that's why they bring in transgender just to make it kind of not what it was before. Where Because yeah. it was the one place where objective truth was undeniable. Did you catch yeah. that ball? <laughs> you know, and if you said you did and you didn't, you're cheating. Well, so there were lines and then dad was there. It was like, yeah. it's so great. And teamwork and those 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 I concepts. hate sports, but I love sports. But the yes. other part was the fundraising. 
when the, I would have to go door to door in my neighborhood yeah. and say, hey, do you want to buy this fire extinguisher? It's really just baking powder inside, but they have it branded like a fire extinguisher. And this is what I'm saying. Or magazines. Or sometimes <laughs> they give you candy and you sell it candy, you know, buy chocolate covered pretzels or whatever. That makes people go out of their comfort zone to meet a goal for the team or themselves or what have you. And yes. knowing how to meet your needs by having a product that you represent. And it's a matter of knocking on doors and having conversations. That skill set, if we just had that, so many more people would have confidence and they wouldn't acquiesce their freedom in order to keep their job because they would know how to go meet their needs elsewhere. My first entrepreneurial experience was when I was uh, I was just a kid and it was when the Braves went from worst to first in 1991 and I made these or it was 1992 it was just the second year they went to the World Series. I made these terrible tomahawks out of paper, which is clearly racist now. And I went door to door and I knocked on doors and I sold people these, these just trash <laughs> tomahawks and they, they just bought because I was a kid. Well, yeah. no, they've shared your values, probably. They oh, wanted yeah, they to want encourage to you. And they gave me a dollar yeah. for these uh, little paper. And they also don't want you going around with your hand out and nothing in exchange. So they want to encourage that early in kids. And that's true. But you Because find it's that a you society. Can... It's a community. And yeah, that but... helps promote it. But the thing I try to teach people is that every company is based on sales. And sales is not a, something we train in universities. And this is a, a skill set source, a skill resource in high demand. And it's useful everywhere outside your job. It's problem solving, right? So it doesn't make any sense that people don't know how to meet their needs when there's a there's a super skill set that they can just start using and apply it everywhere for everybody around them and be indispensable. I have to interject a funny anecdote. I know we're going over, but it was just funny to me. My husband was on the phone on a business call and he said to the guy, what are we doing and what do we want to do? And my son was sitting next to me and he said, well... <laughs> What we want to do is buy low and sell high. But what we're actually doing is buying high and selling low. And I just died laughing. I was like, you have encapsulated every business question <laughs> since the beginning of time. And you're a teenager. We just laugh all the time. I just crack up as soon as my husband picks up a business call. We look at each other and like, are we buying low and selling high? It's just, and that's not my husband's business, but it is in a way. That's it. You just want to, you, it's adding value or whatever, but it's a very, very simple. And it, it's they people don't talk about that openly, but how simple it is. And, and that's how we eat. And it's good to like the maybe piece of paper Braves thing isn't perfect. You really I really encourage kids to add value. I'm like, you're not going out there selling crystal light. Like we're going to go to the store. We're going to buy lemons. We're going to make the best lemonade ever. We're going to go to a busy street corner. We're going to promise the best lemonade ever for your money back. And when you make your money, you're going to pay me back for my lemons. My kids are like, what? I'm like, that's that's it. And look, everybody got value out of that. And if they didn't, you don't have the money to pay me back and we're not doing it again. Yeah. And when they get older, they'll learn that when life gives you lemons, smart people make lemonade. Entrepreneurs make lemon martinis and sell them for 15 bucks a piece. That's, that's great. You know, I cannot believe you trumped me with a cocktail leveling up when all I care about is cocktails. Uh, that's not true, but I do love my my cocktails. OK, and then the last thing is that I've often thought this, that the elite make sure that we have a morality that they don't have to follow. And you hear Brzezinski say that, like the elite will not abide by the normal, by what so society thinks as morals. And I find that true, even like people who take advantage of you. Salesmen, in a lot of cases, con men especially, is or even just good liars or people who just take advantage is they are always exploiting your good manners 
And I or often like that's a big problem is like that my inability to tell somebody, hey, I think you're fucking lying, you know, that it is such a disadvantage for people who um, always try to aspire to that. And that, that I think is why community is so important and society and reputation and knowing each other and having this um, expectations of when, when is an exaggeration expected and when is it a deception or a lie? And that can be social. And I just feel like that's a social issue that maybe um, some of the things that you've been talking about recently spoke to. And I just wondered if that rang a bell to you. Well, first off, you have to have the intellectual self-defense. So there's certain cases where hyperbole is not uh, accepted. Like if you were getting the tires changed in your car and they're like, hey, your shocks are going to go bad in 60,000 miles. Right. They leave that part out. That's dishonest. But if Tucker hyperbolizes something in an opinion piece where he's like pontificating, like that's acceptable. My brain is a mature one. I can put it back in proportion. I don't have to take the cartoonist reality as my as my reality. So part of it is knowing when and how to push push back, right? You might not call someone a liar, but you might say, help me understand how you came to this conclusion. Can you explain your observation and your your step-by-step reasoning, how you came up with making that decision? That could be with a child or with a politician. It's the same kind of questioning. So having like a, uh, a doorman bodyguard type of situation to protect your brain from untruths, that's your inquiry. That's your observation skills. And that's the vigilance of doing that all the time. And then when and how to push back, maybe it's talk to 10 or 15 other people before you push back because there's strength in numbers, whether it be like a mask or a vaccine issue, these sort of things that go on out there. One person might not do it. Or sometimes you just need one person to get into action. Right. The, the bystander effect, as Corbett pointed out last week, this this thing that can say, well, everyone else is going to take care of it. I'm not going to do anything. Also has a flip side of no one's doing anything. If I take a leadership position, other people will probably copy that and do likewise for themselves because freedom's a self-responsibility thing. And once you see somebody do it, you feel like, oh, I guess I should be doing that too. Right. Um, there's uh, from carrying a light with you every day and having that kind of self like uh, everyday carry mentality of what do you, what tools do you need to go out and meet the world and its challenges and its unknowns and come back safely. Right. So and there's other people who walk outside and they just need nothing except their phone because that they think that's their tether to safety and security. Right. Well, I, you know? I feel like a lot of what you're saying goes to something that I find difficult, but with practice, you can get it, which is mindfulness, mm. just awareness of your surroundings, a little bit of thought. So if somebody is bullshitting you, I'm like, my thing is to just be like very polite. But if you were to just allow yourself a moment to think that could just be the first step to where you could actually push back and defend yourself and whatever, press forward. And mindfulness isn't like, you know, uh, hippy dippy uh, meditation type thing, right? It's just being attentive in the situation. And you know what? You're not, your mind is naturally attentive in the situation and paying attention. If you don't distract it and overwhelm it with a whole bunch of fear and things that aren't true and nonsense and noise, if you like clean the desk and make sure that you have room to operate and feel life's problems and challenges and opportunities, because while we're upset about the things someone said yesterday or whatever, we're missing the opportunity of today. And universe has a way of saying, oh, you've got a goal. Well, you can get to your goal, but you're going to have to make it through all these distractions first. We're going to offer you counterfeits and we're going to offer you other opportunities to distract you. And it's like, a, you know, universe is a classroom, but it's also like a game. And so if we're going to be gamified, I'd rather be gamified by nature than by man, presuming it is God over nature, because that's just kind of ignorant. That, that's interesting, Monica. There's an improv exercise 
it was improv's all about being in in the moment, reacting to that very last thing that that, that present moment instead of being in your head. And the exercise is di- one one line dialogue at a time because sometimes people will just burst forward and the scene will just go awry. So one person says one line and then the other person repeats back that line and thinks briefly before responding. Now that's probably off-putting in a normal everyday conversation, but it is such an, an effective improvisational training technique to keep people in the moment and reacting to that last thing that people said in a more thoughtful way that it's, it's worth doing in your head. It builds anyway. muscle memory. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I have that's a couple uh, questions. Uh, go ahead. I was just going to say that's how I teach students. The, the way I teach them that concept is through teaching them the interview skill in, in like the third week. So they have to go and interview 10 of their fellow students, but their fellow students also interview them and it gives them listening and presentation of themselves and digging around for goals and support later and working together and these sort of things. So it kind of builds that same uh, familiarity in an accelerated fashion from the meaning and substance that comes from those interactions. And it gets people moving, which is what you were pointing to. What's your question? Absolutely. Well, this is, this is pretty simple. I just want to see if there, I'm just looking over my bookshelf. I'm trying to find the most obscure books that I can see from where I'm sitting. And I want to see if I have any book that you don't own because I've already thrown my probably most obscure book out and you had like three of them, three versions of that book. (laughs) That's funny. The Organizational Weapon, A Study in Bolshevik Strategy. I don't have that book. Well, that's a good one. You probably, you, you, you already know most of the stuff it teaches anyway. It's a RAND study that just breaks down all of the, the Bolshevik, Bolshevik manipulation techniques. What about, this one is. All that is, RAND stuff was coming from the Hoover Institute where Anthony Sutton worked until he figured out the people he was studying were uh-huh. the people he worked for. And they're like, no, can't yeah. be here anymore. Yeah. We're not going to help you publish. And then books. they threw him under the bus. Yeah. What yeah. about. Strategy of Deception, a study in worldwide communist tactics. Who is that by? This one is by. I don't, I don't think I don't think I have that one either. Let me see the cover. This is an original. It's okay. yellow. It's kind of hard to see. No, I need no, that. I, I like that. the Go jackets. Fish. Yeah, this is good. <laughs> Go Fish. That's excellent. The Phantom Public. You probably have that one. Don't you? Walter. I Lippen. don't. No, that's I don't think one. I do. Oh I should. That's a I good one have if that. you're white pilled, though, because you can get really some, depressed. I got some Bernays and I got some Lipman over here, but I only yeah. have public opinion. Well, yeah, public opinion is good. What do about a little? Oh, yeah, but I yeah. keep them on lower shelves because got any Harold Laswell uh, lower shelves? Harold Laswell stuff? No. Harold no. Laswell is he's like another Bernays guy. You know, they write all these books for each other and they know. Yeah. And there's a uh, Freddie A.J. Ayer. Who is uh, there was uh, Ivy Lee. There's a bunch of these guys in the coterie of serving the robber barons and ruler class with Machiavellian ideas. Who was that other one you just said? I want to write that one. Uh, Ivy Lee and AJ, Freddie, AJ, Ayer, A-Y-E-R. All right, I'm checking out A-Y-E-R. Yeah, it'd be worth it. I'd love to get a look at your bookshelf sometime. Sure, there's a lot of stuff I'd like to do. I got this room. I got this library, and there's books over here. And then I have another library in the sunroom. And then I keep my good research books for the books I'm writing up in my office. Fantastic. So this is I like- want to move out of my house just so I can have a library. It's been my fantasy my whole life. And I just finally said to my husband, I'm like, I'm going to open an online store, and I'm going to sell my books. And he was just like... I have another interesting problem in the realm of library and it's going to be an ongoing project and I have a plan, but you know, we're just getting started with it. But since um, John Taylor Gatto passed two years ago, this past October 25th, 
Oh, he and lived about, a long time after that stroke, huh? Yeah, he did. We hung out a lot after oh. that. I'd go see him every every six weeks or so. Would cut his oh, hair. I used to take him fantastic. to the barber. I, yeah. well, when he first got out after the stroke, they lost his dentures. So it was six trips to New York to get him dentures. Oh, and then yeah. we used to take him to the barber because Janet would be like, his hair is getting too big. And then that was fun. <laughs> but he, it got he got beyond the point where we could yeah. take him out of the house. It was too yeah. painful. So then I started just taking clippers, cutting his hair. But we would film wow. uh, like my buddy Dylan and I would go there and he'd tell us stories and we'd have a, we'd have a good time. Sometimes we'd smuggle him some Guinness. He liked the little little Guinness, you know, pork chop, you. pork chop in a bottle. And um after last year, I think it's been a year, December, uh, they had to give up the apartment. So I moved with, you know, some of my graduates, we moved his entire library and part of it's in storage. We have it in a couple different secure locations, but everything that was library in his apartment. So I have all the books that he what used to write his books. I want to make a John Taylor Gallo foundation that will yes. have an annual homeschooling, alt schooling, unschooling conference. We need to get a lot of big ideas and big people and get them together and say, here's what's possible. How do we do this? Because that's the future. If we don't get this information back in front of the children and continue to maintain his legacy and, and teach what he found, like we can't solve the problems. People don't know there's a problem to be solved other than the system's not operating right now. It must be incompetence. I don't know, know if people realize yeah, that John yeah. Taylor Gatto was teacher of the year like in some inner city in connecticut new york and, no new york state oh, was in new, and york? new york te- new york state new york city school teacher of the year i think twice and he and resigned I, publicly in a letter to the wall street journal saying i just can't do this anymore yeah his yeah. books are great so binkley anything else and then i got you at the bad time there I can't hear you because you're muted. I said, I'm good. That was Slightly. great. Thanks for. OK, fantastic. Show. So, Richard, tell people where you want uh, them to look for you and anything else they need to know about you before we wrap it up. All right. Traditionally, my website is tragedyandhope.com, But my more recent projects are the Grand Theft World podcast. So that's at grandtheftworld.com. And then just touch podcast. And you can see all the episodes. There's 50 episodes there. And getautonomy.info forward slash ignite is the landing page for my course, which is for, you know, if you're older than 18 and younger than 94, you could probably use this course and you'll use the skills you build in it every day. You'll make a lot of great friends. You'll break through a whole bunch of fears and other things holding you back. That's really not going to be necessary to take with you those things in the future. So the sooner you lay down the baggage and get the high value skills and get plugged in, the sooner you can start to see your goals manifest more consistently in life. So get autonomy.info. And the last offering is we have the digital media and marketing company, Autonomy Unlimited. So that's autonomyunlimited.com. And it's for people like yourself who have uh, broadcasting and streaming and businesses and trying to get posts everywhere and distributed and edited and delegating and systematizing for entrepreneurs. Wow, that's a lot. I feel like I have to look into it and not, and not fully absorb it right off the bat like that. But yeah, take it slow um, and easy. Like all my work, it's long form. Everything's long form. So. Well, I've always uh, been really delighted with your work. And so whatever you're up to, I have to think it's some serious quality. And by the looks of your brain, <laughs> that insight into the history blueprint, that's something I, I really want to pick. So thank you so much for coming. I hope that we achieved our goal, which I really just wanted to introduce you and your work, your long, um, not only long form in, the, in everything that you do, but your long 
a history of contributing to truth in a way that is fully resource, fully backed up and uh, really unassailable. I've never heard you say anything that you uh, don't distinguish between what you know and what you think and can back up what you say, you know, and that's my criterion for somebody I can that does not throw any red flags up for me. And uh, so I appreciate that you're coming and we really enjoyed this. I hope that we are the propaganda report. People listening to you um, don't know us, Monica Perez and Brad Binkley. And we thank so much Richard Grove for his time. Thank you, everyone, for listening.